Good morning. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. John Wooden was the greatest college basketball coach ever. You couldn't argue with that. He won 10 national championships, seven in a row. He wrote a book. If you're a wannabe basketball coach, you're looking in the book to see what was his secret. And he said this, basketball is dribbling and passing and shooting and running and rebounding and blocking out. Period. You say, well, what's the secret? The secret is that basketball is dribbling and passing and shooting and running and rebounding and blocking out. In in other words, you got to do the basics. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said, we didn't spend much time preparing for the other team. We just made sure we were doing what we did best, the best that we could do it. Of course, it didn't hurt to be 7-4. But what he's saying is, we did the basics. So Wooden's philosophy was very simple. Be excellent in the basic things. Now, it takes sacrifice to be excellent in the basic things. Because if you play basketball... It's not a whole lot, a lot of fun at practice when you're just going through drills where you're trying to use your left hand and get good at using your left hand. And, and sometimes you wear these, these uh, vision blockers so you can't look down at yourself dribbling and you're just you're doing this re- over and over again and with repetition so that you get better and better and better so that you're excellent at the basics. You want to be over in the corner practicing your last second fall away jump shot but instead you need to be going over the basics and going over the basics and going over the basics and I believe that that same philosophy applies if you want to be victorious in the Christian race and that is you need to stick to the basics you need to work on the basics and that takes sacrifice as well You see, as a Christian, I have a great amount of liberty. I'm not under law. I'm not tied to legalism. I don't have a long list of do's and don'ts. I am free to do many, many things. I can practice my left hand dribble, or I can go over in the corner, and I can shoot fallaway jump shots. But in chapters 8 to 10, Paul gives us some reasons why sometimes we need to make sacrifices. Sometimes we need to give up our liberties. And there are two reasons in these chapters. Number one, because I might stumble others in chapters 8 and 9. And Paul is the example of that. He said, I have the right to receive monetary recompense from you, but I have given up that right for the sake of the gospel and others. So the first reason is I might stumble others. The second reason is I might disqualify myself. And that's at the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10. And Paul gives two examples. Number one, himself at the end of chapter 9. He says, I am running the race to win. And therefore, I'm making sacrifices. I am controlling my body. I'm not letting my body control me. 
And then the other example in chapter 10 is Israel. Israel had all the privileges. They were delivered from Egypt. They were guided by God. They were provided for by God. But they fell into lust, idolatry, immorality, putting God to the test, and murmuring. And we're told that they died in the wilderness. And in verse 11, Paul says, we had better learn from their mistakes. We better learn not to push our liberty too far We better learn not to live too close to the edge or we might fall into the same traps that they did. And then we come to verse 13. And I want you to notice what Paul says here. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Now this verse acts as a comfort and an exhortation. It's very comforting because we're told that God won't let you have more than you can bear. And that God will always provide the way of escape. So that you don't have to be uh, strewn all over the wilderness like Israel was. You don't have to be disqualified like Israel was. Great comfort in that. But it's also acting as an exhortation because he's saying, if you're tempted and you fall into sin, you can't blame your circumstances. And you can't blame God because God provided you the way of escape and you didn't take it. So there's great comfort in this verse. There's great exhortation in this verse as well. Now, this morning... We're going to be talking about temptation. So this is, this is practical stuff. It's kind of like a lollipop sermon. Okay, it's going to be, there's no depth to this. It's going to be easy for you to understand. You're not going to enjoy it a whole lot, but it's easy for us to see. This is a great verse for you to underline and highlight and come back to and memorize because this is so practical to our Christian lives. But before we jump into the verse... I want to first of all establish our definition of temptation. Most of us have the dictionary definition of temptation. The dictionary says it's the act of enticement to do wrong by promise of pleasure or gain. Temptation is the seduction to do evil. And that's the way we generally define temptation. We see it as something that is bad. But you know, it's interesting when we come to the scriptures, we find out that temptation is actually morally neutral. Temptation is the Greek word parosmos. And sometimes it means enticement to do evil. At other times, it's simply a test that brings out the positive characteristics in our lives. For example, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1, it says... Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Is it wrong to be tempted? No. Jesus was tempted. In fact, this verse tells us that the Spirit of God led him up to be tempted. So God allowed that to happen. But you see, God's purpose and Satan's purpose were very different. God's purpose was he allowed Jesus to be tempted to prove his righteousness. 
Satan's purpose was that he wanted to provoke unrighteousness. Same activity, two different purposes that show us the difference in this work. Same is true of Job. If you read the book of Job in chapter 1, God is the one who floats Job's name in front of Satan. He says, have you checked out my servant Job? And so he's allowing it to happen. In fact, he tells Satan, you can go this far, but you can't affect his body. And so he drew parameters around what Satan could do. God was allowing that. And again, God's purpose was to prove his righteousness. Satan's purpose was to provoke unrighteousness. And so I want you to understand that temptation is morally neutral. Its moral quality comes from the source and the purpose of that temptation. For example, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, that's the Greek word parosmos, Abraham, when he was tempted, offered up Isaac. Now, who tempted Abraham? God did. God's the one who said, I want you to take your son and sacrifice your son. And in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17, it says it was a temptation. It was a parosmos. You say, well, wait a minute. Look, look, look at James chapter 1 with me. You say, wait a minute, Dan. In James chapter 1 and verse 13... It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Parosmos. God parosmos Abraham, and James 1.13 says, God doesn't parosmos anybody. So how do we explain that? Well, it's apparent that the word temptation is morally neutral. And so it takes its emphasis, positive or negative, from the context of the source of the temptation and the purpose of the temptation. You see, God will test you to bring out your best qualities, but he will never test you to solicit you to do evil. And whenever temptation comes in your life, whenever that temptation, that solicitation to do evil comes in your life, you can know that it came from Satan or, as we're told in James chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. So it comes from Satan or it comes from my own lust, my own desires. In fact, look at, look at James chapter 1 and verse 2. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That word trials is the Greek word parosmos. Count it joy when you encounter temptations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete 
lacking in nothing. Here's parosmos, temptations that come into your life, and he says when they come, you should count it a joy because those temptations, those trials, God is using to produce in you endurance and to make you complete in Christ. So I want you to understand that when you see this word temptation, it gets its meaning from the source. When it's God, his point is to prove righteousness. When it's Satan or your own self, it's producing unrighteousness. And maybe another way to distinguish the two types of temptation is that when God tests us, it's external circumstances. In fact, in James chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, consider it joy when you encounter. That word encounter means literally to fall into trials. The kind of trials, the kind of temptation that God allows is typically circumstances. You're going along fine, and then all of a sudden you have a financial difficulty in your life. Or you have an illness in your life, or you have a death in your family. Those are circumstances that God uses to produce Christ-likeness in you. But see, when, when I get an external trial, and, it, and I turn it into an internal enticement to do evil, that's me. You see, you may be going along and you have a financial problem. And you pray, Lord, thank you for this financial problem because it's allowing me to lean on you. That's the right prayer. But then you say, well, you know, this kind of gives me an excuse to uh, cheat on my income taxes because I got a financial problem or to do something over here to compensate. So again, God allows it to produce righteousness. We often twist it around and internalize it and make it a seduction or an excuse to do evil. Now, let me give you one other verse. Remember when Jesus told the disciples, we call it the Lord's Prayer, it's actually the disciples' prayer because they said, teach us how to pray. And Jesus gave them a prayer, and at the end of that prayer, in Matthew 6, 13, he says, you're to say, and do not lead us into temptation. That's interesting. Now, if we pray for God not to lead us into temptation, what's the assumption? That God might lead us into temptation. But James chapter 1 and verse 13 says, God does not tempt anyone. So God doesn't tempt anyone, and we're praying, God, don't tempt me. You say, okay. Then it must mean external tests must mean circumstance. God, don't test me to produce Christ-likeness in me. That doesn't work, does it? You say, well, what does it mean when I'm to pray, do not lead me into temptation? Well, I think it means that we're asking the Lord to stop us at the point where our trial is still a test and to not let it turn into a temptation. And the rest of that prayer really promotes that idea because Jesus says we're to say, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or can read, deliver us from the evil one. Don't let my test become an opportunity for Satan to wipe me out. 
And the idea is to keep your tests tests and don't let them turn into internal temptations. Okay, have I confused you completely? When we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, this word temptations includes a broad spectrum. It includes what we call trials involving external circumstances. Those come from God. He allows those. And then it includes temptations, which means being enticed to evil by either Satan or by your own lusts and desires. And what I want us to see this morning that is, is that in verse 13, Paul tells us three things about temptation. Listed those in your bulletin. Number one, temptation is not unique. Number two, it's not overwhelming. And number three, it's not inescapable. Or if we're going to talk about the basics here, he tells us something that we need to know. Then he tells us something that we need to believe. And then he tells us something that we need to act on. Three things. You need to know it first, believe it second, and act on it thirdly. Here's what you need to know. Number one, your temptations are not unique. Look at verse 13 again. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Did you ever think that your temptations are greater than anybody else's? I must be the only person in the world who's ever gone through temptations like these. Nobody's got it as bad as me. What does this verse say? You don't have any temptation that isn't common to everybody else. Your temptations are not unique. They are not new. They are not different. In fact, he says they are common. The word is literally human. They come with being human. The temptations that you experience are no different than what everyone else experiences. In fact, your temptations are no different than the heroes of Scripture experienced. And that's evident because they fell into the same sins. You look at the heroes of Scripture, Noah got drunk, Abraham lied to a heathen ruler, Moses disobeyed the Lord by striking the rock a second time, Jacob cheated, the children of Israel mistreated Joseph, Elijah whined and complained and grumbled to God, David committed adultery and murder, Jonah rebelled, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus three times over, and John Mark defected. Temptation is common to all men. They are not unique to you. In fact, even the temptations that Jesus experienced were only common. Because Hebrews 2.18 says he himself was tempted, and Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 
The temptations that Jesus experienced were common temptations. You say, well, but he was God. He must have experienced God-like temptations. No, because James says in James 1.13, you can't tempt God. So what Jesus experienced was the temptation that we experience. It's common to us. That's why James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another. You know why we confess our sins to one another? Because we're in the same boat. And it's helpful for you to confess your sins because it's freeing from the guilt. But it's helpful for me to hear your sins because I can identify with those same sins. Sometimes people sit in my office and they go, I don't want to tell you what I did because it might shock you. Like, shock me? What, what, have you found a new sin? You got a new one? Did you get tempted to do something nobody else has ever done? See, we confess our sins to one another because Galatians 6.2 says we're to bear one another's burdens. We have common temptations. We all struggle with the same. I may not have done what you did, but I have been tempted over and over and over again to do what you've done. 1 John 2.16 says, all that is in the world, when it talks about the world, it's talking about the evil system. All that is in the world is three things. It's not complicated. All that is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That's it. All that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, or the lust of the eyes. That, to me, is possessions. I look around and say, I want that. The lust of the flesh, pleasure. I want to do what makes me happy. And the pride of life is prestige, self-glory. That's all it is. That's all the temptation is. The world is tempting you. Satan is tempting you. Your own flesh is tempting you toward possessions, pleasure, and prestige. And Paul says they're common. They're human. Now, that's exciting to me because the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. So that tells me I've got human temptations and I've got divine resources. My temptations are just common. They're just human. My resources are divine. And we need to know that, first of all. Secondly, he tells us what we need to believe. And that is your temptations are not overwhelming. Look again into verse 13. He says, and God is faithful. Do you believe that? Do you believe that right in the middle of a temptation when your circumstances seem to be going crazy and you're enticed to do wrong and sometimes there's a whisper in your ear that God has forgotten you, that God has abandoned you. He says, God is faithful. And that's what we need to believe. Lamentations 3.23 says, Great is thy faithfulness. 
Psalm 36, 5 says, Thy faithfulness reaches to the skies. Earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9, it says, God is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24 says, Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, The Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his promises. God is faithful. That means God keeps his promises. And what is his promise here? We'll look back in verse 13. He says, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. That's the answer to our prayer in Matthew 6, 13. Lead me not into temptation. God will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able. Does God mean that? Is he going to keep that promise? Yes, because God is faithful. This is great, great encouragement to you. Because whatever's going in your, on in your life circumstantially, whatever you're tempted to do, God is not going to allow you to have more than you're able to handle. I think about the disciples. Remember when they were in the garden and the, the Judas came with the, with the Roman, uh, what was it called? Cohort. That helped you, didn't it? 600 soldiers, they come into the garden. And Jesus steps forward and says, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus. And he said, I am. And they all fell down. And they dusted themselves off and got back up. And Jesus said, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus. And he said, I am he. Therefore, let these go their way. And then there's a little commentary there in John chapter 18. It says that the word might be fulfilled which he spoke of those that you have given me, I have not lost one. Now, that's interesting. Jesus knew at that point in time, the disciples were not able to handle getting arrested. So Jesus said, I'm, I'm the guy you're looking for, let them go. What would happen later? They would get arrested. At least 10 of them were probably martyred for their faith, history tells us. So Jesus says, they're not ready right now. I've got to protect them from this circumstantial trial. Later, God allowed that to happen in their life to grow their faith and to glorify the Lord. And so if you are receiving trials right now and difficulties, you can actually take it as a compliment. Because God is saying, you're able to handle this, and that's why I'm letting you have it. Letting you have it may sound a little strong. I noticed that in my Christian life. Early on in my Christian life, man, I was smooth sailing. It was like, this is wonderful. I love the Christian life. It, it's, it's wonderful. And then you get down the road a little ways, and you start hitting some speed bumps. And things start changing, and you get some trials, and sometimes you get yourself in a situation where you think, God, I can't take this anymore. Well, you see, we can never say to God, I can't take this anymore, because what does he say? He never gives you more than you can handle. So if I'm saying, God, I can't take this anymore, 
I'm contradicting God because he's saying, yes, you can. You can take this more because my goal is not your comfort. My goal is to make you more like Jesus. And if staying in the fire a little longer purifies me, then that's where I want to be. See, that's what we need to believe. We need to believe that that God is allowing those trials for our greater purpose, and they're not overwhelming. He will never let you have more than you can handle. Thirdly, here's the action part. Here's what you need to do. He says it's not inescapable. Notice the end of verse 13. But with the temptation will provide the way to escape also so that you will be able to endure it. God provides the way of escape. Now, what is it? Well, when it's a trial, when it's a test, when it has to do with our circumstances, the way of escape is to go through it. He says that you may endure it. I view trials like a tunnel. You have to go through them to get out the other side. And we understand that. When, when somebody's going through a trial, they may have a, you know, an illness or a death in the family. Something's going on. Maybe their kids are in trouble. They're, they're going through a difficult trial. We pray for them and say, Lord, help them to go through it. And help him to learn the lessons you want him to learn as he goes through it. Now, when it happens to me, what's my prayer? God, get me out of here. But see, we understand it when we're thinking about other people, that they've got to go through that trial. We do that with our kids. You've got to go through this in order to learn the lesson that you need to learn. In fact, I, now that I mention that, I, I did that with uh, Shane. Shane had a skateboard. And he said, Dad, we, we lived on a street with a big hill, and he said, Dad, can I go up on the hill and get down with my skateboard? I said, no, I, I wouldn't do that. Because Shane was a big risk taker, and, and uh, he would start out and then get himself into trouble. I said, don't, don't do that. And, and he wouldn't listen to me. He kept debating. That's a good word for it, debating what I was saying. So I said, well, all right. Go up to the top of the hill and go down on your skateboard. Brand new skateboard, never done anything with a skateboard. He goes up on the hill and starts down the hill on the skateboard. Now, I was up on the hill running along with him, trying to take care of him, but as it turned out, he was faster than I was, and he went down the hill just screaming at the top of his lungs straight down the hill until he finally crashed on the concrete and got scrapes and everything everywhere, and I was there to pick him up in that situation, and he learned that I'm always right. (laughs) I couldn't teach him any other way. And that's what God has to do with us sometimes is to say, you're going to have to go through this in order to learn how to behave. And sometimes the only way we'll learn is to have some scrapes and some bumps along the way. And God loves us enough to let us go through that. But you know, God is always running alongside us. And we're not faster than him. And oftentimes he's able to catch us and soften the fall in his mercy and grace. Now, the, when you go through a trial, 
You have to endure it. You have to go through it. It's like a tunnel. The other type of temptation to do evil, which comes from Satan and comes from our own lusts, he says here, God provides the way of escape. There's a way to get out of it. Whenever you have a trial, a temptation, there's always a way of escape if you will look for it and find it and take it. I used to have a friend, a friend who said, I don't have any problems with temptation. I give in. That's not the way of escape. Let me, let me give you some suggestions on ways of escape that God provides for you. Number one, we need to control our thoughts. So you never do anything that you don't first think about. And when when somebody falls into temptation and they do something, if you commit adultery, it didn't happen the day you committed adultery. It happened way back in time when you started thinking about it. And gradually you set yourself up for that fall. And so the first way of escape is we need to control our thoughts. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I hide God's word in my heart, his thoughts inside of me to keep me from sin. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When I get a thought in my mind, a negative thought, an enticing thought, a temptation, I'm to realize I'm in a battle and I'm to wrestle that thought down and take it to the Lord. If I allow that thought to come in and fester and take over and settle into my brain and I develop the thought, what's going to happen? It's going to bear fruit ultimately in my life. The victory is won and lost in your mind. Job 31.1 says in the Living Bible, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I ogle at a girl? I'm not sure what ogle means, but I, well, I pretty much know what it means, but not familiar with the word. I've made a covenant with my eyes. The eyes are the window of the mind. I've made a covenant with my eyes that I won't lust after a girl. Now, you can't help the temptation. You can't help noticing. But you don't have to turn around and look and develop the thought. Proverbs 4.25 says, Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. That's a good verse. Keep your eyes in front of you. The the, uh, Pharisees took this verse literally and they used to put blinders on so that they were walking along like this and if a girl went by they had to turn all the way around to look so some said there were guys called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because they kept running into things because they were always looking back but the verse says look ahead the way of escape is number one to control our thoughts If you can have victory in your thoughts, you will have victory in your actions. Second way of escape is to run 
What's the next verse say in 1 Corinthians 10? Verse 14 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. There are certain sins that you don't negotiate with. There are certain sins that you don't rationalize with. You simply run. One is idolatry. The other is a sin closely identified and connected with idolatry, and that's immorality. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee youthful lusts. You don't stay and argue. You don't stay and quote Bible verses. You run. You do what Joseph did when he went into Potiphar's wife and she enticed him day after day after day and finally one day she just grabbed him and said, lie with me. What did he do? He ran and left his coat in her hands. Number one, we control our thoughts. Number two, we run. Some of us aren't very good at running. You know, these movies come on the television, and they, they warn us. I mean, it comes up on the screen. It says, this movie is going to be detrimental to your spiritual life. Not in those words. We see that on the screen. They're warning us. And what do we do? Get the popcorn. This is going to be good. We'll, we'll settle down on the couch and take this in. No, you need to run. They're telling you, this is going to be bad for you. Run. Control your thoughts. Second, run. Third, get things out of your life that tend to lead you into sin. Romans 13, 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. We often make provision for our flesh. And if you think about the times that you have fallen into sin, you can often connect that to things in your life that are directly associated to that temptation and that sin. It may be places you go. It may be things that you own. It may be friends that you have. You think, every time I fall into sin, that guy's with me. Duh. Maybe you need to separate yourself from that guy. In Acts chapter 19, in the, in the city of Ephesus, when they became believers, it says they came together and they burned their books on magic. There was nothing wrong with the books. The books weren't demon-possessed. None of that was taking place. They were getting rid of their past. And maybe there are things in your past that you need to burn, you need to get rid of in your life because there's a constant association between those things and the sin of your past that is now coming into your present. Control your thoughts. Run. Burn up some things that are continually connected to your temptation and sin. Fourth, make healthy friendships. Hebrews 3.13 says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest anyone be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, I'm not in this race alone. I should have friends who are encouraging me 
to live a godly life and who are calling me on the carpet when I have sin in my life. Because the danger is that if I allow sin to go on and on and on in my life, even as a believer, I can be hardened by the deceitfulness of that sin. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee flee youthful lusts, but it doesn't stop there. It's not just a negative. Flee youthful lusts and pursue after righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. See, I'm to be fleeing from youthful lusts, and I'm to be pursuing the things of God with others. So I should be making healthy friendships with others who are encouraging me. I'm not a runner, but for me to go out and run alone would last about, well, it would last that long. I'd think about it and never do it. (laughs) But if I told you I really would like to run, and you said, all right, tomorrow morning we'll run together, then I'll show up just because you told me, you know, I don't want to leave you hanging out there in seven degrees in the morning. If we run together, we encourage each other, We're pursuing something together, and that's the way it is in the Christian life. You need healthy friendship. You see, when the movie comes on and says, this is detrimental to your spiritual health, do you have somebody that you can call and say, man, I'm struggling right now. Can can we get together? Can we go have coffee? Can we we talk? Because I need to flee from this, and I need to pursue the things of God, and I need you you to help me right now because I'm really weak right now. And I need you to come alongside me and help me out. Do you have that kind of person that you can call and they understand and they can assist you? Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with wise men becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Let me give you one final way of escape and there could be many others prayer Jesus said in Mark 14 38 keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation keep praying what happens we pray when we have hard times he says keep praying even when times are good pray so that you won't come into temptation very essential if you're going to have victory in the Christian race that you plug into the power source in prayer. Let me close by showing you a couple of verses. Look over at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Very encouraging verses. I want to show you two verses. Hebrews 2.18, first of all. Speaking of Jesus, it says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And then one other verse in chapter 4, in verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 
But it's great when you come to prayer to realize that the one that you're talking to understands exactly what you're going through. I don't have to say to God, God, you have no concept about temptation because you're holy and you've never experienced this, but let me tell you about it. It's tough. I don't have to do that. I can come and say, Jesus, you know exactly what I'm going through. Jesus went through every temptation you go through, yet without sin. We often think, well, he didn't sin, so he really doesn't understand temptation. You know how you understand temptation? You don't understand temptation by giving in. You understand temptation by saying no. And the person who can say no to temptation experiences the full ramifications of what temptation is, and Jesus experienced that. So when I come to pray, I say, Lord, you know exactly where I am. I've been here before. You've been here before. You can sympathize with my weakness, and you can come to my aid in this situation. That's the way we pray in a time of temptation. So the key to temptation, be excellent in the basics. Know that your temptations are not unique. Believe that they're not overwhelming. God's allowing exactly what you can handle. And third, act because they're not inescapable. With the temptation, God always provides the way of escape. And so you and I have no excuse not to be victorious in the Christian race. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this passage, this verse that's so practical. Thank you for giving us this encouraging verse. And Father, wherever we're at today, wherever each person is at today in relationship to temptation, pray that you would help us to understand your truth, to realize that we have human common temptations and we have divine resources. And Father, help us to lean on your pattern for victory that we would know that you are God, you're in control, that we would believe that you're only allowing us to experience what we can handle and that we would act by taking the way of escape so that we might glorify you and experience the, experience the joy of victory in our lives as we seek to follow you day to day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.